This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Do you find yourself juggling multiple websites and clinical tools as you care for your patients? NeoCarePal is a resource providing access to multiple clinical calculators in just one place. To learn more, visit nicuconnections.com backslash NeoCarePal. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. One of my favorite aphorisms is that a rising tide floats all boats. So if we can figure out how to provide care to those who are most vulnerable and um, most disadvantaged, then we can figure out how to do things better for everyone. So there, I wanted to mention a few things about um, this report that I think it are so great. Um, one is I, I think it's very articulately um, making a plea to finally do something about these things. But I loved that the meeting was not in Washington, D.C. It was where Native populations live and work. And people who have lived experience were invited to be in the discussion. So, um, Ed, do you want to talk a little bit about well, where Lily, the I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because this is important. <laughs> The, the HRSA has never had a meeting outside of Rockville, Maryland. In the 31 years of the, the, the advisory committee, always met in Rockville. Uh, and trying to get them to move out of Rockville took a lot of work. But I said, if we're going to talk about American Indian Alaska Natives, we have to be on tribal land. And so it took a lot of work, and we, they finally agreed. And, you know, and then they facilitated that. We met on the land of the Shakopee, Benwakan, and Sioux community. Made all the difference in the world for the conversation. First of all, people from across the country, American Indians, Alaska Natives, felt much more willing to actually show up in person and be there and form relationships because they felt a little, a lot safer. They felt heard. Um, they formed some relationships and the committee that was there could hear these stories firsthand. This is, this is amazed me. These people who are experts in the field of maternal and infant mm. care said, Oh, I knew the data all along, but I didn't know how important it was until I heard these stories. And that's the other point that came out of this is that we have a lot of the objective data, but the, the personal stories, the lived experience, our data just as important, actually, and more powerful than the birth certificates and death certificate data. And so I think the feds saw the power of this and said, oh my goodness, we have made a mistake over all of these years not to be meeting in the communities that are being affected. So they've actually changed their policy. So every other meeting is now going to be in a community where they can hear those community voices. So something is happening because of that meeting. That, that's great. And, and for the people who are listening, the report we're referring to is called Making Amends, 
recommended strategies and actions to improve the health and safety of American Indian and Alaska Native mothers and infants. It's available online, but we'll link it uh, directly on the episode show notes. So even then, you don't really have to look too far for it. And it's it's very extensive. It's very well written and has a lot of very, very good information about both uh, the state of affairs and the perspective of, like you said, the people in the community. And it doesn't only talk about healthcare data. I thought it was very interesting that you addressed the idea of how women are viewed and, you know, just added cultural attitudes about. I, th I think the most clinicians, women. you know, they look at the end product, they look at the interaction in the office, in the hospital, and they don't realize the context from which all of these things evolve. And our report really focused more on the context than on the services and programs. And and so that was the other unique characteristic of our report. It actually, it was a report about context, and it put all of the data into a perspective that could be understood. And as Lily pointed out, the medical care is important, but it's all of the stuff leading up to that that is the most important. It leads to all of those outcomes. Yeah, what you guys are describing is really kind of the underpinnings of culturally competent care. Um, but before we get too far away from the report, um, you guys did make uh, three recommended areas for strategic action, since it sounds like there are so many systemic factors at play. And maybe you can speak to some of those um, actions, tasks that we can take from a healthcare systems perspective. Uh, well, certainly the, the three general areas, one is make American Indian Alaska Natives a priority, and that meant being represented at the table, you know, having the, the voices at the table, changing the data collection so that it is important, um, and then change, change some of the, the focus, particularly of, of federal agencies. So that was all about the data piece and making it important. The second was recognizing that uh, American Indians, Alaska Native, just like everybody else, are, are affected by the care that they receive and by the social conditions. So we want all of the federal agencies to work interactively to focus on those social determinants of health. And we made a big plea to reform and evaluate the Indian Health Service and also then work on workforce, because as Janelle said, you know, race concordant care has been shown to be important. And then the third area of recommendations was about these issues that are particularly uh, crucial for American Indian Alaska Natives missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, the incarceration of pregnant women, particularly among indigenous populations where they're overrepresented, uh, mental health issues, violence, uh, SIDS. So, so we general recommendations, prioritizing social conditions and access to care and some of these special projects. Then we had a whole variety of recommendations under each one of those categories. So, we're getting into the second half of the of the episode and you are describing a problem that is very depressing because it is both complex and and it's a problem that many other uh, people may say well these other groups are also dealing with similar issues and so now i'm wondering when you're looking at the state of things right now what are the and i, and I have some ideas that i want to bring up but i want to hear your thoughts first where do you think um, the solutions will come from? What are the tools that are becoming more and more available that you think will help 
address these action, uh, these strategic action items that will help improve the care for um, for Alaska Native and American Indian. Where where is where do you see hope on the horizon? Before you get to that, answering that last part, I want to the first statement that you made is about this group compared to other racial groups. There's the American Indians, Alaskan don't consider themselves a minority. They are sovereign nations. And that is a huge issue uh, because they, the tribes view their relationship with the feds in a totally different way. They are sovereign nations, not a minority group. And so that's their mindset. So they have some expectations from the federal government because the government promised all of these things. That's and right. they're trying to hold the government to those, those promises. The sovereignty also changes the relationships that the tribes have in states because states don't know how to deal with sovereign nations. Um, so they oftentimes get ignored and some of the, and, and the feds have the same problem. Most of their funding comes from, you know, the federal to state to local, but the tribes are not part of that, you know, that, that cascade of, of funding. So I think before we talk about, you know, some of the specific th- actions, People have to recognize the sovereign nation issue should be at the basis of their interaction with people from tribal communities. I, I want to clarify then because I, I, it's a, you're making a good point. My, I guess what I was trying to say was, as Daphna mentioned, that a lot of the issues that we talked about um, in, in this context are very often also uh, issues with our healthcare system in general, where our healthcare system is failing across the board. And so I guess that's what I was I was trying to get at, where um, that that. Um, yeah, so that that's but but thank you for 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 making that point. So so one of the things so uh, you know I, and I I wanted to bring it because I didn't before we got end <clears throat> end of this program I wanted to make sure we brought up the sovereign issue mm-hmm. and I also think that um, healthcare systems <clears throat> are not held accountable for the community impacts and so I think one of the things that we need to do like Rush Medical Center in Chicago is actually looking at how many people do they employ from the community how what are the community outputs that that occur. How are they changing housing factors? So I think that we need to broaden our definition of what we hold healthcare accountable to uh, and, and the impacts they have on that is one of the way to change the care. Uh, we can have, you know, the best, I mean, you know, I say, you know, the, you know, when, when my work in the neonatal intensive care unit, this was back in the seventies when we were just getting, you know, we could save babies really, really small and, but a lot of energy went into that. But it didn't change the overall outcome because so many people were still at risk and the low birth weight still occurred. We need to shift, you know, away from all of our dollars at the end of life kind of theirs and actually change on some of the preconditions that that lead to those. I love this idea that um, our healthcare systems, which are moving more into the business sector than the service sector, you know, are responsible for what happens in our communities. Um, and we've talked a lot about some of the major system um, issues. And I wonder for a lot of our listeners who may be individual healthcare professionals, uh, even trainees, um, what do you think we can do in our individual healthcare systems, our individual communities, one-on-one basis with families um, to, to move the needle? Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. 
Racket Me Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive and female portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. To learn more, visit hcp.meetjohnson.com. I would, I agree with everything that has been said. And I would like to just take a step back and say, Ben, the fact that the, what we are talking about today was surprising to you is such a crucial part of this. If we're going to make changes, there needs to be wider awareness that there's this history that has shaped outcomes. And so we have to be able to, as a nation, come to terms with the United States history and how systemic policies have shaped social determinants of health today and why certain populations may be over-policed or why they have, may have housing or food insecurity, why they may be self-medicating um, through substances if they have issues going on, chronic issues, intergenerational issues, right? So like that's all a part of this. And we have to step away from what I've heard people call the pain Olympics. You know, like the we cannot separate out that uh, this group over here and this group over here and this group over here have uh, these wildly um, poor outcomes. And we have to look at this as a nation and decide, do we want to be a better nation? Because what we've been doing and how we've been doing things isn't working. And we have all this data that shows that. So maybe one of the ways we need to try is an integrated model, right? Where we have a holistic model and it's not just parsed out. So there's a number of things that could be changed. But whatever we do, if we continue along the way that we're doing, likely the disparities are going to be get, become greater, especially as we have global warming and climate change, that uh, people are going people are going to be continue to be more disenfranchised as time goes on. 50 years from now, when I am close to 100, I do not want to see that uh, my community is still at the bottom or is still struggling. But that is that is likely going to happen if the nation as a whole doesn't make changes. And part of those changes would be looking at an integrated model, look at holistically the whole person, talking to community members because communities know and understand what the needs are, right? The local, the local control and power of that, the information, the lived experience. So I would only add to that on an individual day-to-day basis, yes, becoming aware of the, this report, um, learning that it's important to understand someone's context and understanding their history and their context is going to help us understand their preterm delivery, their, um, you know, any kind of risk factors or any kind of um, problems that when people are born or infants accumulate or sudden infant death, you know, like those things are going to be understood better and possibly prevented if we understand context and work on ameliorating those contexts, improving those outcomes. Yeah. And I think, um, to, to the point you were making, I think I, I, I'm in a unique position because I am not from the U S right. And I, and I came to the U S, um, pretty late. I mean, I came to the U S after like when I was in my twenties, 
And so what's interesting is that I did learn history in Europe, but the history of the US was what, maybe a week, a week right. in 11th grade. And so when we're talking about genocide, it's like, yes, that, 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 that I'm aware of. But then when you read the report, you read everything that happened and, and all these implications into how we deliver care today. And you're like, oh my God. And I think fortunately our country is a country of, uh, populated by a mixed group of people and doctors coming from all walks of life and all uh, parts of the world. And like, and I think just like me, we may be familiar with the big tenets of American history, but not the continuous history that has led to where we are today. And that's why I think it's, it's a, the report itself is a, is an eye opener and even, and, and not only out of, you should not read it out of curiosity because if you are going to care for these patients, you have a duty to know uh, to know that. So yeah, I wanted, I wanted to emphasize but, that. And Ben, we live in a time yeah. Yeah. in our country where there are some states that are saying learning our nation's history, our true history is not appropriate. You can't teach my child that. So I would say that you're not alone, Ben, and not, uh, not knowing a lot about American Indian history in particular, because that is something I encounter because I have a whole other presentation where I educate people and help them understand this context for understanding health outcomes mm -hmm. among native people. And, and it's a surprise right. every time. Yeah. And I want to get back to what Daphne asked about, you know, what can individuals do? So I, two, two points with that. I've been in healthcare long enough. You mentioned that, that it's turning more into a business. So most physicians are really discouraged. Uh, clinicians are discouraged with what's happening and it's not meeting their expectations. I'm finding that the people who actually spend, the clinicians who actually do some public health work actually have more satisfaction in their work. So get engaged in the community activities, policy making, you know, and other things in addition to the clinical point. The other thing that very specifically is change your view from portrait view to landscape view. Uh, and, you know, look, using the, the Zoom terms, you know, if you just look at the portrait view, you get a different. We need a landscape view on, on our on our clinical work and our and that includes some of the community issues. So. It is a way of looking at the world that I think they need to do, recognizing that more and more is going to go into the business aspects because that's the way healthcare has become a big business. So if they're going to maintain their sanity, they have to get involved upstream with some of the community oriented. And that means they're more important now than ever into these social issues uh, that really impact health. Like our radiologists say, uh, a second view on x-ray gives you better perspective. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to ask, you know, as advocates for the community, for people um, who want to learn more, who want to make their facilities and their units and their offices a more welcoming place, since what I'm hearing is there's likely a lot of mistrust and frustration and anger um, in the community. What are some, uh, maybe some resources for people to take a look at in addition to the report? First of all, who do, who do they hire? Who do they have on their committees? You know, that, that, that's who's around the table is, is really important. So look at your HR, you know, who are you hiring and what are you, what are you evaluating in terms of your impact in the community? Um, and then for the resources, I think there's an incredible number of resources that are out there, but we know people have not read them. They've not paid attention to them. Mm. You know, we need to advocate. The, the, the issue related to the Indian Health Service. It's been known for a long time, but no action has been taken. So we need to talk to our legislators to say, put some resources into this and let's, let's make some changes. 
my last question for you guys is is a tech related one and I feel like circling back to some of the things that we've discussed at the beginning of this episode, talking about how people identify themselves, how complex that can be. I am wondering if you are all looking at artificial intelligence and potentially um, its its potential use when it comes to the ability to handle uh, complex data as something that could be an outlet to provide not all the solutions, obviously, but part of the solution. And while I understand that... Um, and and while we understand that AI is 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 the way we think about it today are trained models and and how we train the model really is critical in making sure the biases are not uh, continued over time. I'm just wondering if you're looking at the ability of AI to handle complex data as a potential outlet for helping move the needle forward on this issue. Well, I, Janelle, I, you, I were, think... you were you were you were smiling. I'm curious to, to hear what you think. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna. I, I think this is what a huge risk. Because AI only uses the data that's already out there. I mean, I asked some, you know, ChatGPT to do some stuff, and they said, I don't have access to those data. Our racist system has kept American Indians and Alaska Natives out of the literature. And so AI has no way of pulling that that in. Right, but uh, but we could train we could we could we could provide the data sets to the artificial intelligence models to train them. And I'm wondering with that information, if we were the agents that trained AI to, to, to look at the data that we have available, could that provide uh, potential, potential hope for the future? Well, we would have to train it to deal with the context, not just the data, because we, we don't have the data historically. We've ignored those data. Moving forward, yes, we do need to have those data and that'll, that'll be helpful. So we need to train AI to actually understand the context in the, and that's going to be really difficult uh, because who's who's programming those things? My guess is that there aren't a whole Ameri- a lot of American Indians, Alaska Natives around there trying to develop the 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 criteria for AI. Uh, I, I have some real concerns about how that's mm. going to look. I I would echo that. Just it, yes, it is. It is all about the trainer. It is the the people who are uh, manipulating the outputs and what is how uh, AI is, is learning something. So then there at least has to be a discussion about collaboration or partnership, not even collaboration. It has to be like a 50-50 partnership, um, which there's a movement in research, right, of trying to engage communities and collaborate with communities because it's, again, building trust. So then with AI, probably would it would probably improve AI to have partnership, true partnership of, of communities building that, not just some back, you know, someone in an office deciding, oh, this is really important because think of this. What if we had the ability to a patient, we have a patient list that we're going to see today and our patient list tells us and gives a, um, a, a score, a risk score, right? Based on all this AI technology and information, which could be pulling even GIS information from that patient's phone, right? Like it could be pulling a lot mm-hmm. of information. So, um, and, and maybe this patient, um, you know, has uh, has poor health, is smoking, um, you know, is uh, living in this uh, uh, lower uh, socioeconomic uh, community. Um, so, like, all these risk factors, all these risks are piling up. So then you have this and you have the patient profile and you're like, oh, it's likely going to change, right, for, for good or for worse how a provider could possibly interact with someone that has this information from AI, right? So the AI part is there's still going to be that personal human connection. And 
if we become a business healthcare system where time is money and we have limited time to spend with people, we have limited time getting to know their context, getting to know them, getting to know their story. And if we turn to AI as one of the the um, gospel ways of trying to articulate someone's risk and what we need to be talking to them about or be careful about, it takes it, it complicates that ability to be in that moment with that person and give them the time that they actually could need, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, but AI uses the predominant information. I think that there's tremendous potential in AI in terms of how to process and handle information, but that's out there. And um, one of the things I've learned as I've moved across the country is that um, the stories about the uh, American Indians and Alaska Natives are often hidden. You know, you and I. One of the pieces of advice I have for every pediatrician, um, every one of my friends, is be curious. You know, ask why is there an Indian school road in every Southwest city? You know, what happened during the relocation during the war in Alaska? Because those, I didn't hear about those until I was there talking to people who experienced them. One last thing, which is a new thing. And that's, you know, um, Ed brought up uh, sovereignty, tribal sovereignty. And that also is conferred to data sovereignty, the ability to a community or tribe to own their data. And so because of the mistrust, because of past uh, communities um, being ostracized economically, even um, because of health outcomes or research that has come out of their community, there has been this movement towards ownership of communities taking over their data and not sharing their data. Like they don't want their data shared. They don't want their blood samples kept. They don't want their high rates of congenital syphilis amongst their infants known, right? Like they don't, there are certain parts that they don't want because that is private to them because it has impact on them as a community, economic impact. Right. Um, so I'm also going to leave you with that, which is another piece of this puzzle, which is new to many people. Well, we have tons more questions that we were are not able to get to, but I, I definitely, for people who want to join you in your advocacy and legislative efforts, how can they get involved? Well, the AAP has an amazing, robust advocacy network and as Ed mentioned, being involved in public health is um, rejuvenating and um, it's very fulfilling. And being involved in advocacy, learning these stories, making sure that the data and the people are included in the considerations for where we should allocate our resources, um, being a, a, an engaged member of your community um, is uh, it's good for you. It's good for your soul. Um, but I would just uh, send people to the AAP. The AAP is actually one of the really important voices in saying we need to get away from these race-based algorithms so that we treat everybody, you know, we're race aware, but we don't uh, allocate our time and our resources according to some formula that may not take everything into consideration. And as, as we've talked about importantly, may not take context and um, this, including the social determinants of, of our health uh, into consideration enough. 
just a couple of specific things. You can join your local public health association. Every state has a public health association. So, and they're, it's cheap to get into, you know, but it, that gives you a different context. Also, you know, many providers are no longer part of organized medicine, but if you are, if you can join your state health association, your medical association, actually, you can start to change the conversation. And most medical associations are now starting to say, we need to look at the social condition and equity is a huge issue. So being at those right. conversations uh, need to be part of it. Uh, you know, mentoring, getting involved with students. I'm, I'm impressed with the fact that students that are coming on board now, you know, into practice are much more respond are socially conscious. And I really focusing on social justice issues. Uh, first of all, we need to, to maintain that focus and also learn some of the things from these, these new groups coming on. Uh, new individuals come out. So get involved in some of the mentoring. You'll learn a whole lot. Uh, and then as Lily said, just be curious. Why is all of this happening? What's the background of this? And as Ben, you mentioned that, you know, this, the history, it is not something in the past. It, history is a live thing. It's informing what happens today. So people right. just need to read a whole lot more, expand the, you know, get away from the New England Journal of Medicine and actually read some of this, the stories that are coming out of people in your own community. One other thing that Ed Absolutely. mentioned is to get involved in public health. And we have two pediatricians in Congress now, but you don't have to do it on that scale. You can, um, you can be involved in your local community. You can serve on an advisory committee at, in the state health department. You can be on a community committee. Um, you can work with the March of Dimes in your community. So um, I think people, it's important for people to recognize the expertise and the perspective they have as healthcare providers and engage and share that knowledge and step up and um, let your voice be heard. I would advocate that if you're more clinically oriented, let's say, um, you know, infants, like newborn infants, um, that maybe you'd look for connections in the community. So you you try to make connections to the local doula community, whether it's the American Indian Alaska Native um, focused doula community or um, midwifery community, or if it's it's if it's a different population. But really try to make connections with the birth workers in the community that are trying to actually bridge that the the work that goes on in helping people that are coming from different socio um, economic groups that have uh, different kinds of hurdles to live through, but have a good pregnancy, have a good experience during their labor and delivery, and have a great outcome for mother and baby. Yeah. And your health systems actually pay for that care. Here in Minnesota, we actually increase the payment for doulas you know, to a $1,500 per delivery and $120 per prenatal visit, where doula can actually be a a profession that actually pays enough that you can live on it. So get your systems to pay for doula care. That's that's great. That's great. I think I think we we will we will leave people with that message. Uh, Dr. Lou, Dr. Ellinger, Dr. Palacios, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us uh, this morning. We will uh, link all the resources that we uh, mentioned in the episode on the episode page on the website uh, of the incubator. And we'll leave some contact info for people who are interested in uh, getting involved uh, so that they can get in touch uh, with you all and, 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 uh, and be part of this, of this positive. Thanks uh, for paying so, attention so to thank this. Thank you all for, for being with us today and, and we wish you the best. Thank you for your time. Thank you. You're welcome.
Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com, or by visiting our website, www.the-incubator.org. You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter, at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.